Good morning, everyone. The kids can uh, be dismissed now for their time of being discipled. Again, it's crucial for us to remember that children's ministry is not child care. This is high stakes uh, investment into the lives of kids, the next generation of servants and leaders and parents in the church. <laughs> it's, it's, at least it's not boring getting to the door. <laughs> But uh, what, what, a few things I wanted to say before I, I dive in this morning. Uh, one, I just want you to know that uh, I am as, if not more, encouraged than ever. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so uh, feel so privileged to be here as a pastor to to do uh, for me uh, what is the most precious work for me on the planet, which is to handle God's word and to invest it in the lives of other people. And I know we just got started, but I just want you to know I'm, I'm loving my time here, and I'm so thankful for you all. Uh, secondly, uh, I just want you to know that, that one of the things that we're going to be saying from up front a lot is uh, we are going to be saying that uh, we are, as Christ community, we are a church that is trusting Christ and we are treasuring Christ. That's really going to be sort of a, a motto that defines who we are. I think that's especially pertinent in this stage of our church, that we are a church that is trusting Christ and we are treasuring Christ. We are trusting Christ to do the impossible, and we are, we are treasuring Christ as our deepest delight. And so that's going to be a way that I'm going to be praying for us as a flock, and I encourage you to be praying that same thing for us as well. Well, I want to begin by saying that every great revolution in history had the same three components that made it truly great. It's the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Chinese, the the Cuban, the Iranian revolutions. Even if you don't know the first thing about them, they all had the same three components that made them change the face of human history. For instance, number one, every great revolution needs a mission. You need a mission. You see, every great revolution has to have a mission that's both worth fighting and worth dying for. You have to have a mission that's worth doing no matter the cost to yourselves. You need a mission. Number two, every great revolution needs a vision. You need a vision. You see, every successful revolution has to have a glorious vision of the future and what life would be like if your mission was accomplished. You see, every true revolution is outraged by what is and is inspired by what should be. And finally, number three, every great revolution has to have a leader. You need a leader because there is no true revolution without a revolutionary. There is no true reformation without a reformer. You see, to change the world, you need someone willing to lead the charge and take the first bullet and give their lives for the cause, even if it gets them killed. You see, that is a revolution. You need a mission, you need a vision, and you need a leader. And oh, by the way, that's exactly what the Great Commission is. It is a revolution, and that's exactly what we see in the text this morning. And yet we need to be absolutely clear here. 
This is not a revolution in the traditional sense of the term. You see, we're not, we're not activists spreading our cause with riots and graffiti. We're not merely after a, a corrupt corporation or the overflow or, or, or the, uh, uh, the overthrow of a political system. No, what Christianity is, is a global resistance. This is a cosmic renewal. This is a galactic revolution. All we're after is the whole stinking planet and the takedown of Satan's kingdom. That is our revolution. And as Christians, we have all of the necessary ingredients for a great revolution. In fact, the greatest revolution in history because we have a mission, do we not? And it's called the Great Commission. And do we not have a vision for the future? And it is when King Jesus returns to earth with the glory of a thousand splendid sons and establishes his kingdom on this planet. And and do we not have a leader? Only the greatest revolutionary in history, the God who became man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the universe and everything in it. That is our revolution. And it's all here in John chapter 17, which I am calling the radioactive prayer of God the Son. And why I call it that is because like radiation, once you're exposed to it, you will never be the same again. You don't read John 17 and then just go on about your day as if nothing had happened. No, what is seen cannot be unseen. And once you see it, it changes you and it changes the way you view the universe and everything in it. Why? Not just because it's a Trinitarian prayer of Christ to the Father, but because what he prays reminds us. It reminds us that to be a Christian is to be a part of something infinitely bigger than yourselves. Call it a global resistance. Call it a cosmic renewal. Call it a galactic revolution. Whatever you call it, it's really big. And it all began back in time before the world began. That is John chapter 17. So this morning, I'm on a divine recruitment mission for King Jesus. I'm here to call you to join the revolution, to join the resistance, or at the very least to renew your commitment to the revolution. And yet, I know, I get it, I know what it's like. I'm made out of the same stuff that you are. I know what it's like to try to be a radically ordinary Christian in a fallen world, with a fallen body, with a stupid heart that still struggles with sin. I know exactly what that's like because I live there. And yet consequently, I also know exactly what you need to live a radically ordinary Christian life in a fallen world with a fallen body, with a stupid heart that still struggles with sin. I know exactly what you need. What you need is John chapter 17, 20 through 26, the radioactive and revolutionary prayer of the Son of God. So here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from Christ's prayer three revolutionary pursuits. Three revolutionary pursuits that exalt Christ, that advance the plan, and that change the world. That's where we're going. Three revolutionary pursuits that exalt Christ, that advance the plan, and that change the world. 
So ready or not, here we go. The first revolutionary pursuit is this, number one. To have a revolution, you must pursue a cosmic mission. To have a revolution, you must pursue a cosmic mission. Now, do not forget where we're at here in John 17. You remember that Christ and his disciples are seated, reclining around a table in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem? The meal is over, their their plates are empty, their hearts are heavy. And about 10 to 15 minutes from now, if that, Christ will be in handcuffs being interrogated by the authorities. And in about six to eight hours from now, after a sleepless night and hours of torture, he will be crucified for the sins of the world. And on the brink of all of those things, what does he do? He prays. He prays. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, get a load of this. In verses 20 through 26, he prays for you. For you and every person throughout history whom the Father had chosen to believe, and you can see it in the text. Look very carefully at verse 20. He says, And I am not praying for these ones only, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, do you see it? He just got done praying for the 11 disciples and for their daring mission to go behind enemy lines and reach the nations with the gospel. But here he says, Father, I'm not just praying for these ones. I'm praying for others also. And for whom does he pray? Look at the text. I am praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you know what he's doing? He's praying for billions and billions of souls in the future yet to be born from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, including the very people sitting in this room. These are souls handpicked by the Father before time and then given to His Son for whom He would die and purchase with His blood. They're called the elect. They're called the chosen. And they are everywhere around you. And they are not yet saved. And yet they will be saved because the Father chose them to be saved. And yet how will they be saved? Through a vision? By a dream? Just just kind of on their own figuring it out? No. What did the text say? Verse 20, I am praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you see it? The word scripture is the answer. People believe and get saved by faith in Christ through the scriptures. And in particular, Christ is talking about the word and preserved and protected in the pages of the New Testament. The four gospels, the book of Acts, the letters of Paul, Hebrews, James, two by Peter, three by John, one by Jude. And of course, the book of Revelation, that is the word about which he speaks. But of course, this all raises the question, doesn't it? For what kinds of things does Christ pray for all those who would believe centuries before they were born? For what kinds of things does he pray for billions of souls from every nation yet to be born, including us? Because whatever it is, you would think that it would be pretty big. And it is big. 
And what he prays for us is found in verse 21. Look at the text. I am praying, Father, for those who will believe, here it is, that they all would be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they themselves also would be in us in order that the world would believe that you sent me. Do you see it? The thing for which Jesus prays for every believer throughout history who would ever believe is that they all would be one. That we would be one. That's what he prays for. And whatever one means must be really big because five times in this chapter, he talks about our oneness and it is big. Because you have to understand, being one here, this is not some kind of mushy, sentimental unity where with other denominations at the expense of our doctrinal convictions, we all just sort of hold hands and get along. No, I mean, we should be nice, but that's not at all what he's talking about. You see, this verse right here has been mutilated for decades to wrongly support the idea that doctrine divides and love unites and, and, and rather than hold our doctrinal convictions with a backbone of steel, rather than trying to save Catholics and, and Muslims and, and Buddhists with the gospel and cause all this disunity, we should instead sit down with one another and, and celebrate our diversity and find the places in which we agree because Jesus said, I pray that they would be one. And yet I'll just tell you right now that a non-theological interfaith dialogue is the furthest thing from his mind. In fact, it is the opposite of that. Rather, get this, to be one together relates to our cosmic mission to put the supremacy of Jesus Christ on open display for everyone to see. In other words, what this is is a global revolution to break open the world. So what then does it mean to, to, to be one? With all of the diversity and differences and denominations that call themselves Christian, what does it mean to be one? And there are three clues in the text that tell us exactly what it means to be one with one another. Clue number one. Clue number one. When Christ prays that they all would be one, we have to ask the question, about whom is he speaking? Who is the they all who become one? And the answer is back in verse 20. Look what he said. I am praying, Father, for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you see it? The they all who become one is, is those who, who the Father chose. It's those and only those who believe in Christ through the explicit teaching of the New Testament, which means we, we are not talking about feelings and who we would like Christ to be, but we are talking about precisely who he has revealed himself to be in the pages of Holy Scripture and who he has revealed himself to be is not just one option on the table out of many, but rather the option on the table for eternal life. Outside of Jesus Christ is only the judgment that all of us deserve. Clue number two. Get this now. 
the oneness about which Christ speaks is rooted in, is a reflection of, and it resembles the very oneness that's in the Trinity itself. Look again at verse 21. He says, I'm praying, Father, for those who will believe that they all would be one. Here it is. Even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also would be in us. See the comparison that he makes? Our oneness, whatever that means, mirrors and reflects the very relationships that are in the Trinity itself. Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, so we are to be one with one another. I mean, I mean think about how theological this is. Whatever this oneness is, it is profoundly Trinitarian. It resembles the Trinity, which means like the persons of the Trinity, we are equal and inseparable from one another. Just like the persons of the Trinity, we are never to see ourselves as separate or independent from one another because we are individuals to be sure, and yet we are also simultaneously one. Which means our oneness is churchy. Meaning that if you are not intimately connected to the local church, embarking together on the mission of the church, well, then let's just say you are misrepresenting the Trinity to the world. Clue number three of what our oneness is. To be, to, to make a radically different people, a unified people, there has to be something that can unify them. Agreed? And guess what? Neither social justice nor world peace are big enough to do that. Because people still disagree on what those things mean and how to actually achieve them. And so that means there has to be something. There has to be something that, that everyone can agree is the most beautiful and valuable thing in the universe. And on that basis, be unified together as one. And the only, and I repeat, the only thing in the universe that meets that description is Jesus Christ himself and all of his unfiltered beauty and glory. Look at verse 22. And the glory which you have given to me, Father, I have given to them. Why? Look closely. In order that they would be one, even as we are one. To see the connection between his glory and our oneness. You see, the only thing, and I repeat, the only thing that has the power to unify radically different people from every nation is a really big object. And the only thing with that kind of unifying power is the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And yet glory meaning what? Glory meaning everything that he is and everything that he accomplished to pull off the eternal plan of salvation, such as the life he lived, the death he died, the grave he conquered, the kingdom he'll rule, that is his glory. And that alone has the power to produce unity between radically different people groups. For instance, 
You want the secret to racial reconciliation? Not, not only in church, but also in the world. You want the secret to that? There is but one answer to that question. The glory of the one who died for some from every race and tribe and nation and people. That's it. Nothing else has that kind of power. Because the whole black lives matter, cops lives matter, all lives matter thing, that's all true, but it all misses the point. What matters is that the glory of God has been trampled by human beings who only deserve hell. And yet God in his love made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. And how he did that was by sending Jesus Christ to be slaughtered in our place. And that right there, that is the deepest racial severing, prejudice erasing reality in the universe. So can you tell? Can you tell now what it means when Christ prays that we would be one? It's way more, way more than some kind of mushy unity based on our feelings. Here's what it means to be one. Are you ready? This is ridiculously long. Don't even try to write this down. (laughs) To be one together means that we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things. One, we treasure Christ together in community. Two, we have unqualified submission to the word of God. And three, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity do. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel that. To be one together means that we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things. One, we treasure Christ together in community. Two, we have unswerving allegiance to the word of God. And three, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity. And I'll just tell you, When, when we treasure Christ together in community, when we have unqualified submission to the word of God, and when we love one another with Trinitarian affection, then, then, then the world will know. What will they know? You're not going to believe it. Look at the end of verse 23. I'm praying, Father, that they would be perfected into one. Why? Why? For what purpose? To what end? In order that the world would know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. Unbelievable. Can you see the global and purpose and mission of what it means to be one? I mean, we're not just having our own little private party here while the world burns out there. No, the world is God's theater. The church is the stage. And when we fulfill our mission of being one, what two things did Christ say the world would know? What did he say? If we are one, the world would be persuaded of what two things? First, if we are one, the world 
will know that the Father sent Christ. In other words, the greatest apologetic proof to the world that Jesus Christ is real and not a counterfeit is when we are one together, starting in this local church, starting in this little ministry. In other words, when we treasure Christ together in community, when we have unqualified submission to the word of God, and when we love one another with with Trinitarian affection, then we make Christ look compelling and beautiful to the watching world. But second, notice, notice what he said. He said, if we are one together, the world will know, get this, the world will know that the Father loves us even as he loves Christ himself. I I don't really know how to wrap my head around that. I mean, you heard what he said, right? When we are one, not only will the world know that the Father loves us, but that the Father loves us with the same passion and intensity with which he loves his own Son. Are you a people loved by God this morning? More than you could possibly imagine. The Father loves his own Son with infinite affection. And here we are, caught in the middle, caught in the crossfire of this radical Trinitarian love. And so the point is, when we treasure Christ together in community, when we have unqualified submission to the word of God, when we love one another with Trinitarian affection, at the end of the day, the world's still gonna think we're out of our minds. But at the end of the day, the one thing they will never be able to deny is these are a people loved by God. So the question is, do you understand the revolution of which you are a part? Do you understand the cosmic significance of what it means to be a Christian? It is to be one with one another, and where that happens is in the context of the local church. And so the question is, do you have any meaningful engagement with lost people where they can see the oneness about which Christ speaks? And I don't only mean that you invite non-Christians to church, but of course do that. I mean, do you weave and absorb lost people into the rhythm of your lives with other Christians so that they can witness the oneness about which Christ speaks? And I suppose I should ask a few other questions like, Do you treasure Christ together in community? Do you love the local church? Two, do do you have unqualified submission to the word of God? And three, do you love one another in this room with Trinitarian affection? Because that is what it means to be one. That is the mission. And if that is not your life, then you have gone AWOL in the mission and you are spending your lives for nothing. Which brings us to the second revolutionary pursuit. Number two, to have a revolution, you must pursue a glorious vision. To have a revolution, you must pursue a glorious vision. 
Because you see, any successful revolution has to have a vision not only of what the future should be, but of what the future will be. Which is exactly what Christ does in verse 24. Look at the text. He says, Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that where I am, they also would be with me to behold my glory, which you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, don't forget for whom Christ is praying here. He is praying for you and for the billions of souls from all the nations singled out and selected for salvation, most of whom at this point had not even been born yet. They, we are called the chosen. We are called the elect. And there are four features of his prayer here for the elect that you just have to see. You almost might not even believe it. Four features of his prayer for the elect. Feature number one, the description of the elect. The description of the elect. Look at verse 24. He says, Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that where I am, they would be with me. Now, do you see it? How he describes the elect. He describes us as those given to him by the Father. And what this means is that before time, we were handpicked by the Father to be saved, and we were given to the Son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. And I just find it so staggering, don't you, that with all the controversy surrounding this doctrine of election, that Christ speaks about it in terms of a love gift exchange between the Father and Son before the galaxies were made. Isn't that interesting to you? And doesn't that say something about the kind of God to whom you belong? An infinitely happy and generous God who loves to save sinners. A God who was loving and enjoying and exchanging gifts with one another in the fellowship of the Trinity forever. You see, for many of us, the God that we invent in our own imagination has a small and shriveled heart, doesn't he? I mean, we just assume that God is kind of like us, Stingy and tight-fisted. A kind of Ebenezer Scrooge who loves to dangle our debts over our head and make us grovel and beg for mercy. Well, I'll just tell you, that is categorically not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose heart is as broad as the heavens and as deep as the oceans and as warm as the sun. Which brings us to feature number two of his prayer for the elect. Number two, the desire for the elect. The desire for the elect. Look at verse 24. Father, those whom you have given to me, here it is, I desire that where I am, they also would be with me. Do you see that? What I want out of this whole deal, Father, is that those whom you've chosen and given to me, that they would be with me that they would be with me. And he doesn't mean where he was at that moment, where he, but where he eventually would be and where he is even as we speak, namely the all-satisfying throne room of heaven. 
I mean, you get what he's asking the Father to do, don't you? He's asking the Father to so sovereignly work in our lives that not only do we get saved, but that we stay saved. I mean, you have to understand, there's no such thing as automated push-button salvation. God kind of flips the switch and off we go. No, we persevere to the end and we see Christ only because the Father moment by moment preserves us and protects us and prevents us from escape. But again, notice, notice the thing for which he asks. Verse 24, what I'm asking, Father, is that those whom you have given to me where I am, that they would be with me. Now notice he doesn't say that I would be with them, but that they would be with me. The difference is subtle, but, it, but it's profound. You see, the point is this. We are not what makes heaven great for Christ necessarily. He is what makes heaven great for us. Now, to be sure, he loves us and cares for us more than we could possibly imagine, but he wants to be with us in eternity, not ultimately because he wants to be with us, but because he wants us to be with him and see him for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Which brings us to feature number three of his prayer for the elect. Number three, the design of the desire. The design of the desire, in other words, Christ's desire for us is for us to be with him forever and ever and ever. And yet his desire for us is to be with him forever. To do what exactly? To do what? Look at the text, verse 24. Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that where I am, they also would be with me. For what purpose? To what end? What does he say? to behold my glory. And there it is. That's the answer. The design of Christ's desire is not so that he could marvel at us forever, but so that he, we could marvel at him forever. That's what he means by glory. He means being physically with him and beholding his unfiltered beauty and majesty and glory forever. That's what he means. That's what his glory is. And it will be real and it will be tangible and it will be the fulfillment of everything you have ever desired. And yet I know what you're thinking. They're thinking, you know, it's really hard for me to, to get a handle on what the eternal enjoyment of Christ will be like. It's really hard for me because that seems so nebulous. That seems so vague. That seems so intangible. To which I reply, maybe not. Maybe it's not so intangible. Because you see, even our own experience tells us, and even the world knows, that we were made with the capacity to behold something infinitely bigger than ourselves. Nature Valley granola bars. Once had an advertisement in a magazine. Two hikers on a towering mountain, viewing this breathtaking sunset in the distance, and the caption at the bottom of the page simply said, you've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant. 
a poet back in the 1800s, wrote this about his first mesmerizing trip to the Grand Canyon. He said, it is remarkable how soon the world fades into complete oblivion. I once spent 10 days at the end of a plateau in the Grand Canyon. At the end of a week, I had forgotten the names of my most intimate friends. And on the last day, I spent several minutes trying to recall my own name. I was so insignificant during those terrific silences that to have a name at all hardly seemed worthwhile. Do you see? We were made for majesty. And sunsets and trips to the Grand Canyon are but little appetizers of the glory of Christ for which we were made to enjoy forever and ever and ever. See, you have to understand that all the pleasure and joy that we hope to find in all of our pursuits can only actually, ultimately be found in Christ. And I'll just tell you that that seeing the glory of Christ, that is, seeing Him for a treasure of infinite value, listen very carefully, I just want you to know that that is the solution to the deepest dilemmas of the human soul. How so? Because sin is what you do when you are not supremely satisfied in Jesus Christ. And to counteract that, what you must do is have your soul rocked by devastating portraits of who Christ is found in the pages of Scripture. What you have to understand is that the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about Christ, but to push yourself deeper than ever into who Christ is. You have to see that the root of your stubborn sins that never seem to go away is that your view of Christ, it doesn't go high enough. It's not compelling enough. It's not precise enough. It's not beautiful enough. The point is this, the more glory you see of who Christ is, the more liberation you experience from the sins that entangle you. Case closed. That is why this matters. That is why this is practical. Which leads us finally to feature number four of Christ's prayer for the elect, namely the depiction of his glory. The depiction of his glory, which, by the way, (laughs) if you've ever wanted to go deep in your study of the Bible, you're about to go as deep as a human being can possibly go. Look at the end of verse 24. Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that where I am, they would be with me to behold my glory, here it is, which you have given to me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, as a side note, did you notice the kinds of activities that the father and son were engaged in before time began there in the text? They were busy loving and giving and mutually enjoying one another's glory. And yet we have to ask the question, don't we? We have to ask the question, what does it mean that the Father gave glory to His Son, Jesus Christ? What does that mean? And when did that happen? Well, when it happened was in eternity past before the universe was made. And what it means is that 
before time, the father and son cooked up a plan. They conspired together to pull off the greatest heist in history, to pull off the greatest rescue mission in history, namely to rip souls from every nation out of the dungeon of the slavery of sin and out of the grip of the evil one. And so to have given Christ glory, here it is, to have given him glory simply means that the father made the son the centerpiece of the plan the face of the company, the star of the show. In other words, his glory is everything the father gave him to do which would accomplish the plan of salvation at the center of which was a sin-bearing death in the place of poor, bankrupt sinners like you and me. But again, what this does is raise the question. Can you feel the question lurking beneath the surface? The question is, Why did the father do that? Why did the father make his son the centerpiece of his plan? Which means what we're really asking is, what is the deepest motive in God that drove him to save sinners in the first place? In other words, what is the ultimate explanation for why you have salvation here this morning? Look at the end of verse 24. Father, I want those whom you have chosen and given to me, I want them to be with me, to see my glory, which you have given to me. And why did the Father do that? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And there it is. There's the answer. Do you see it? The deepest motive in God that drove him to send Christ to save hell-deserving sinners was not ultimately because he loved us, but because he loved his son before the foundation of the world. Now, be very careful. I'm not saying that the Father's love for us wasn't a factor in sending Christ to save us. I'm just saying it wasn't the ultimate factor because what the text says, what the text says is that what drove the Father to create a world filled with sinners who desperately needed a Savior was His love for His own Son before the foundation of the world. And you remember those days in kindergarten, right? Show and tell day. And you got to bring the thing that you love the most. And you got to show it. And you got to talk about it. And you you got to explain it and talk about why you loved it. And you wanted everybody else to love that thing the the way you, you wanted them to feel about that thing the way you felt about that thing. The connection is this. All of human history is just one giant show and tell by the Father. The Father put His Son at the center of His plan because He wanted everyone to see and enjoy what He had seen and enjoyed forever. 
He sent his son because he wanted everyone to feel about his son the way he felt about his son, which means the deepest reason you have salvation here this morning, if indeed you do have it, is because of the overflow of the father's affection for his own son before the foundation of the world. So my question is, isn't this the kind of God with whom you want to spend eternity? A God who has been infinitely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity forever? Because I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you that if God were gloomy or miserable or brooding or bleak or depressed, neither the gospel nor heaven would be good news. But the greatest news in the world of which you need to remind yourself every day and your children every single day is that the happiest, most joyful person in the universe is God himself. And the reason he is, is because he is a trinity. Which brings us finally to the third revolutionary pursuit that exalts Christ, that advances the plan, that changes the world. Number three, to have a revolution, you must pursue radical love for the revolutionary himself. To have a revolution, you must pursue radical love for the revolutionary himself, because we all know that every great revolution had a revolutionary. Every great reformation had a reformer, but the problem is, is that every revolutionary and every reformer in history had weaknesses and flaws and, and, and limitations. Every revolution in history died when the one who began the revolution died. But you see, this is the one exception. Because in about 10 minutes from now, Christ is going to be betrayed and arrested and hauled off and tortured and crucified and killed. But you see, when they killed him, it didn't kill the revolution. It began the revolution. And in verses 25 through 26, the last verses of his prayer, he reveals the most important thing about the revolution, namely himself. Because what you have to understand here this morning is that the Christian life is not just about doing stuff, it is about prizing a person. Loving Christ more than anything else in the universe is the thing that defines our revolution. And so look at verses 25 and 26, the very last thing he prays, and listen very carefully for the word no, K-N-O-W. Righteous Father, Even the world does not know you, but I know you. And these ones know that you sent me. And I made known to them your name, and I shall continue to make it known in order that the love with which you loved me should be in them and I in them. Did you see it? Five times in two verses, he uses the word no. And each time he does, it increases in significance. And you also notice that Christ doesn't actually ask for anything here. And he doesn't have to because everything that he prays will come to pass. And see, all he's doing here in these final verses of his prayer is reiterating back to the Father for our great delight some 2,000 years later that the plan of salvation, despite what it seems on the, on the surface, is going exactly as planned. As a righteous father, he prays, 
Even the world does not know you. And that's true, isn't it? The world doesn't know the Father. And this is not innocent ignorance. This is damnable ignorance. The world doesn't know the Father because they don't want to know the Father. Because they have rejected the Father by rejecting his son. But then Christ goes on. The world does not know you, but I know you. I know you, Father. Which is the understatement of the universe. Because being God himself, he has known the Father eternally and and intimately in the fellowship of the Trinity. And then all of a sudden, almost as if pointing over at the disciples, he says, and these ones... Father, they know that you sent me and I made known to them your name. In other words, I saved them, Father. I made you known to them because that's ultimately what salvation is, isn't it? Knowing God is our deepest delight. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent But this course raises the question, and I close with this. Why does Christ save people? What what, what drives him to do that? In other words, what's the end game of it all? What is the essence of what salvation is? Do you know the answer? Because the answer is absolutely devastating in a good way. What is Christ's aim in saving hell-deserving sinners like us? Look at the end of verse 26. And I shall make your name known, Father. In other words, I shall continue to make your name known to billions and billions of souls from all the nations yet to be born. I shall make you known to them, Father. Why? For what purpose? To what end? What does the text say? Here it is. In order that the love with which you loved me should be in them and I in them. Did you hear the answer? Did you hear it? Why does Christ save people? Why does he break into people's lives and make the Father known? What reason did he just give in the text? Answer, so that you will love him as much as the Father loves him? That's the answer. (laughs) Isn't that what he just said? I shall make you known, Father, in order that the love with which you loved me should be in them and I in them. Are you kidding me? The, The ultimate design of our salvation is that the very love the Father has for the Son would be our love for the Son? That we would love the Son just as much as the Father loves the Son? Are you kidding me? Well, how does the Father love the Son? And and just one look at the New Testament, it becomes really clear that the Father treasures His Son. He adores His Son. He enjoys His Son. He values His Son. As long as the Trinity has existed, which is always and forever, the Father has loved the Son. And the Father's love for the Son is to be your love for the Son. That is the essence of what salvation is. That we would prize Christ that we would treasure Christ, 
that we would adore him and be captivated by him and be satisfied in him that he would mean everything to us. You see, the entirety of the Christian life with its thousands of commands and responsibilities can be distilled down into one explosive phrase. Loving Christ more than anything else in the universe because that is how the Father himself feels about Christ. And with that, the prayer is over. And the revolution has begun. And you're probably thinking, and I really do close with this. You're probably thinking, okay, loving Christ the same way the Father loves Christ? Yeah, that's not possible. That's, that's not realistic newsflash. That's, that's never going to happen. To which I reply, well, one day it will. One day it will in its fullness and it will be glorious. But until that day comes, let me give you something to hang on to. Let me give you one pitch to trust the word of God. If the aim of the Christian life is to love Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, and it is, then the only way to increase in your affection for him is to see him ever more clearly for who he is. And the only place that happens is in the pages of Holy Scripture, which isn't just some book, but it is an encounter with the living, all-satisfying Christ through the words on the page. And so hear me very carefully. No ifs, ands, or buts, or apologies offered. The fires of love for the Son are kindled in the furnace of the soul by the fuel of truth. When you are saturated with the book, you will be infatuated with the one in the book. You can take that home to the bank. I just want you to know that when you are saturated with the book, you will be infatuated with the one in the book. And when you are infatuated with the one in the book, when you have entire churches loving the son the way the father loves the son, well, then what you have on your hands is a revolution. A global revolution in which souls from every nation one day will gather together and who for all eternity will declare forever worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we feel like little ants at the foot of Mount Everest, gaping up at the towering majesty that lies before us. Oh Lord, we feel like we, we can't even climb, we can't even crawl to a, a Theology 101 class when we encounter this kind of stuff. This is so big, this is so massive, and not all of it we get. Some of it we just kind of barely sort of hang on to, and, and yet, Lord, what we're asking, oh Lord, is that this would produce in us trust in you, Christ, and to treasure you. Would you make us those kind of people, a people that trust you and treasure you, a people that trust you for the impossible and that treasure you as our deepest delight? All we want, Lord, all we want is to be used as 
instruments, unworthy though we may be, to put your beauty and glory on open display to the watching world and to enjoy you as our highest treasure. Thank you for this congregation. I pray for these people, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would help them, that you would enable them, that you would cause your word to come alive to them and grip their souls and change their lives, and that you would empower them to be a part of the global revolution and the cosmic renewal called the Great Commission. And we just look forward to how you will be working in our lives, always and only for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Before we do a benediction, let me say uh, one thing about congregational prayer and why we're doing it. Uh, Again, as Rich said, you're not obligated to come. You know, we're not going to be taking attendance there or anything or docking you kingdom points if you don't, you know, make it. Um, But it's crucial. It's really crucial to, to pray because God has a sovereign plan and you have to understand prayer doesn't change God's plan. Prayer is the means through which God unfolds his plan. And so therefore we must be people who pray. And this is especially crucial during this time in our church when really what we are is we're kind of like, at least from my perspective, kind of an exciting time where it's kind of like a church plan. You know, we we get to start fresh and we get to rethink things. And so We don't want to just come up with a bunch of bells and whistles and things that we think are a really good idea. What we want to do is we want to implore the living God to work in our our congregation and that the only explanation for our church would be a sovereign God doing the supernatural. Isn't that what you want? That the only explanation for our church would be a sovereign God doing the supernatural. Therefore, we will pray. So at 9.30, one of the rooms down the hall, there'll be signs marking it off, I think. And... um, just come and, and pray with us. And as Rich said, bring the kids. I, as he said so well, we want them to hear us pleading with God to do the impossible. And then we'll eat a bunch when we're done, just like the early church. Pray a lot, eat a lot. What a win. Well, if you can, stand with me for the benediction. May Jesus Christ who has all authority, who rules the nations, the furthest planet, and every speck of dust floating in the sunlight. May he give you grace this week, sovereign grace, to love him with joy, to kill sin with violence, and to speak about him with courage. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week.